you know the Logitech MX series, well, get excited. Something new is cooking on both the hardware and the software side. MX Master Series mission is to help all developers stay in the flow, and they're looking forward to seeing what you have on the horizon. Follow Logitech on social to find out more. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Stack Overflow podcast. I'm your host, Ben Popper, Director of Content here at Stack Overflow, joined today by a very special guest, someone who has created software and ideas that a lot of people have used to help build the web, who has answered a question or two on Stack Overflow and built up a nice chunk of reputation, and who now is working to build sort of the next phase of the web and headless CMSs and things of that nature. So Mishko Hevery, please welcome to the show. You are the CTO at Builder.io, creator of AngularJS, and we're glad to have you here on the Stack Overflow podcast. Thank you for having me, Ben. I really appreciate it. So before we get started, you were trying to tell me a story. Funny in some ways, I think you came on Stack Overflow. You've got a nice chunk of reputation, 50K, but you only answered really one question, you'd say, that got you all that. And of course, it was your you were answering your own question. That's yes. the classic, <laughs> classic way to game Stack Overflow. <laughs> yeah, so uh, when Angular Chase was just starting to happen, right? I answered a question, or rather, I made a question. It was like, "How does Angular JS work? So, how does the change detection work in Angular JS?" Right. And so, I asked that question to myself, and then I was nice enough to answer it. And that one question seems to like keep <laughs> paying dividends, you know, like ten years later. Well, that's good. Either because Angular JS is very confusing, or because people continue to see value in it and seek it out, and so they want to know how it works. So I think probably a little bit of both, right? Yes, we do that all the time. We have you know like our own internal Stack Overflow for all of our questions. So I say, you know, I want to get something up on the blog. I post the question and the answer, so people know where to go, and they don't have to ask me that same question over and over again. But Mishko, for people who don't know, tell me a little about yourself, how you got into the world of software, and how it is you came to yeah create something like Angular. It depends how far you want to go back. So I, it's funny enough, I started as a computer engineer, which means I designed hardware, not software. Oh, okay. I, I joke that like I'm the JavaScript engineer who knows how the transistor works. <laughs> <laughs> and so over the years, like I started in backend systems and, and databases, mm-hmm. and then slowly I kind of migrated to the front end. And then, you know, about... 13, 14 years ago, I started this project called AngularJS that kind of become popular. Uh, I kind of surprised myself on that one. Mm-hmm. You know, and then we did this other follow-up thing called Angular. And about two years ago, I, you know, I was at Google for 16 years. And so I was like, 16 right. years is long enough. You know, I'm either going to become institutionalized or I have to move on. And so I decided to move on. And um, I went and joined Builder.io as a CTO. And uh, one thing I didn't specifically wanted to do was start another framework, but somehow here we are. <laughs> uh, I started another framework called Quick. I think it's significantly different than the other mm. frameworks. And I think those, one of my requirements is if I'm going to start something else, it can't be like a marginal, you know, like DX improvement. It has to be a fundamental right. rethink of how things work. So let's travel back in time a little bit. 13 years ago, you were at Google. I don't know what you're working on, but maybe Angular wasn't sort of the project you were assigned. What what was the thing that the problem you had personally, the the itch or you know the pain point that made you want to create this? And how did that become sort of you know your central focus? Was this a twenty percent time project that turned into something, or were you building something internally that then you know got open sourced and put out to the world? So back in the day, you had multi page applications, right? Everything was rendered on a server, and mm-hmm. if you think about it, like all of these apps are really a standard like round tripping. Like you go from the database to the UI and from a UI back to database, right? So it's just a big marshalling problem. 
what you have in front of you. And, you know, every web app you would build, it's the same thing. And at some point you're like, I'm just kind of tired of doing this. Like, <laughs> is there a better way? And so I started Angular on a side. It was not really meant to do anything. And, and the goal of Angular was actually very different. It was to extend the HTML vocabulary so that non-developers, you know, a web designer who understands a HTML can build simple applications. Like it wasn't even meant to be like complicated stuff. Like it was meant to be like simple stuff, like make a guest book on my page. I don't remember if you remember those days when guest books were a thing. Sure, you've got to log in so folks know where you belong in the uh, blog rankings. Blog <laughs> That's yeah. right. And so I started working on this uh, kind of on the side and, and at Google, we were building an app using Google Web Toolkit. And Google Web Toolkit really has a really bad round trip. You know, you know, from the moment I change a piece of code until I get to see it, like it would take like two minutes. Like it was really painful. And so, you know, I kind of jokingly came to my manager. I said, like, you know, this is ridiculous. I could do this <laughs> in two weeks with uh, the, the side project. And he kind of called my bluff and said, okay, show me. And so I kind of rewrote this whole Gwit app in the side thing, which we, was called Angular. And uh, people kind of noticed like, hey, this is kind of crazy that you could, you know, redo, you'd be so much more productive. But it wasn't really a framework. And so it was only at that point where we, we kind of said like, hey, could we make this into something that others can use as well? Right. Uh, and so it kind of grew from there. You know, it's interesting to hear you say that you wanted it to be something that was accessible. I was reviewing the Builder.io site today and checking out you know, a few of the other headless shops. And one of the things that I see a lot is the idea of removing the bottleneck. So instead of having product and engineering and marketing and design you know, all kind of stuck together in a queue, let's give people you know, the ability, even if they're kind of low coders or no coders, to be able to work with some of this stuff. So it sounds like that's a problem along with DX that has kind of been at your core for a long time. Yeah, so, so Builder has a headless visual CMS. And I think the keyword over there is visual. So the, the headless thing basically means that you're hosting your own infrastructure, right? Like, so like, you know, if you go to Wix, Wix will host mm -hmm. it for you. But if you're target.com, it's kind of hard to use Wix, right? Like you can't do it. <laughs> so you really want to host it. And the downfall of all the hosted or what's known as headless in the industry, uh, CMSs, is that they're essentially glorified spreadsheets where you have keys and values and as a, as a, engineer you decide what the keys are like oh you get to change the image you get to change the right. text you get to change whatever right and then the marketing really only lives inside of that form and they can't really go outside of it and if they want to go outside of it like oh i want to have two images well right. let me talk to the engineer and the engineer can go and change yeah, it. i'll put in the pull request for that and wait a few weeks and uh, yeah, 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 yeah yeah so the visual part really means that as a marketing person, you have full freedom to do anything you want. You have a drag and drop editor and you can create anything you want, including dragging existing components that the engineers have written. And then when you drag those existing components, you know, you, you might have to do some data binding or something like that. But then you can just reuse the, the power of engineer, right? So the engineer can focus on what they like to do, you know, create new stuff. And mm -hmm. the marketing can focus on what they like to do, which is make it look pretty and interesting and, you know, right. do A-B testing and kind of, yeah. exactly, get people's attention kind of a thing. And so, like, it, it really improves things, right? So, like, I like to say that, you know, the old headless CMSs, they have a strong schema and the marketing has to follow that schema. Right. Whereas uh, visual CSS is schema-less, right? You, you mm. can do whatever you want inside of that box that the engineering has given you. 
And so did you come to Builder.io at the beginning or did you come sort of after the founding? Like, were you a CTO who was part of its creation and developing its tech stack or did you kind of come? I came after. Yeah, yeah. So Builder.io has been around for about five years. Yeah. And, you know, it's really has hit its stride recently. I think we have done some fabulous growth recently. Uh, I yeah. think the first three years or so was really the product development. And I came in uh, about two years ago and um, my thing was like, hey, I want to make the web faster. I think it's the way the web works today is kind of a, you know, not the best thing. And so I kind of chatted with Steve about this a little bit. Um, and interestingly enough, like uh, Steve was like, hey, I have the same problem. Like we build these landing pages and they're just not fast enough. And the cu customers right. always complain. And the thing is, it doesn't matter whether you build them in React, Vue, Svelte, you know, whatever your latest, greatest solid framework <laughs> you want. Right. They're all about the same in terms of performance, even though they're all claiming that they're the fastest, right? And so he's like, well, the only thing that kind of works is just sending HTML. Everything else, like the moment you have JavaScript in there, like the performance just right. goes down the drain. And then you say, well, yeah, but like if you don't send JavaScript, then you don't have interactivity. And that's kind of important. important. And so this is where Quick comes in, right? Like Quick has this trick where we like don't send any HTML, uh, JavaScript at the beginning. It's mm -hmm. all just HTML. And so it's super fast. But then we know how to cleverly attach the JavaScript as you're using the application. I think I met uh, Steve. We were at the Next.js conference with Guillermo Rauch and talking about Vercel. Vercel uh, made some news, I believe it was earlier this week, talking all about new edge functions. And you know, when, when I think about Quick, that's what I think about as well, You know, delivering instant apps using some of those tricks where, as you said, the less JavaScript you know, you're kind of moving around, the better. Obviously, you need it for interactivity, but HTML is where you want to be at and you know, caching things and streaming things and you know, trying, as you said, Let's go back to the start. Not to make these round trips, you know, every time on every click or every refresh, right? Yeah. Uh, but I think Quick is a bit of a, in a category of its own. Like, it, it does things very different. I think people are recognizing that there's too much JavaScript, but there are limited options with the current approaches because the current approaches all have this thing called hydration, right? And hydration is basically, it, it's one of those bugs that we turned into a feature, <laughs> Uh, but what hydration basically is, is that the framework needs to recover information about the application. And this information it needs is where are the listeners, you know, where the mm -hmm. click mouse moves or whatever. Right. Uh, what is the state of the application? And what is the component tree? You know, if I change this state, which component do I have to re-render? Mm. And the problem is that all frameworks that are currently out there, the, the way they do this is by re-executing the application from the root component. So you, you go right. to the root component and you start, you know, recursively visit every single component underneath it. And that means that if a component is visible in your current page, then it has to be downloaded and executed before any interactivity can happen. And that basically is, is kind of the, the, the problem we're facing is that this hydration, this process of recovering this information uh, is very expensive. It causes you to download huge amount of JavaScript. And not only is it downloading right. the problem, but you have to then execute all the JavaScript. Uh, and so all of that is, you know, slowness that that the user experiences. And so when you talk about slowness, you know, uh, the clients that uh, I see on the builder side, a lot of them are in the world of e-commerce. Does slowness, it doesn't mean what you said before, you know, two minutes. It, it means, you know, a few seconds of stuttering when, you know, I'm browsing and that then translates back, you know, overall to 10, 20% difference in sales, right? I mean, like when, when yes. you talk about slowness, what are you talking about? 
we're talking about startup performance. Right. And specifically what that means is, you know, you're uh, browsing your social media, whatever your favorite yeah. uh, thing is, and you see like this ad or you know, or somebody's promoting like this amazing shoe is going to make you jump higher or whatever, right? <laughs> and you click on that link and you get to a page and you're like, oh, I, I want the shoe. This is great. Let me push right. the buy button. And the buy button doesn't work, right? Yeah. You click on it, nothing happens. And you wait like, okay, so... Did I not click, right. right? Or did you not register the click? Let me try clicking later. And then finally, you know, the thing wakes up and like now you have two items in the shopping cart instead of one. <laughs> and at some right. point you're like, you know, like, screw it. I don't really need those shoes. Right, right. Now right. I've already gone back to the social media app now. I've lost, yes. my, you've lost my attention. You've lost my attention, right? And so that results in less sales, obviously, because right. you just, right. people right. just get frustrated. And this is especially true on mobile devices and on like spotty networks, right? Like, you're clicking something and the network is not really delivering and it's like, wait, okay. And so that's the problem that we are talking about in terms of startup performance. And so this is called right. uh, sometimes as time to interactivity. And Google has this thing called a lighthouse, which is um, kind of a yeah, yeah. way of measuring this. And so it measures it on slow network and slow device. And it is not uncommon for the lighthouse to basically say that it takes 30 seconds before the page becomes interactive. And so that means that you come to a page on a you know slow network, whatever, and you want to purchase thing and you can't do it for 30 seconds or so before like the page kind of starts working. That's an eternity in web time. That's an eternity, sure. right? And so this is specifically that we're trying to solve. So you mentioned hydration, you know, and how some of the stuff that is out there for React, for example, is using this, you know, client-side JavaScript at an application state talk to the server-rendered HTML. What is sort of the thing about Quick that is different? When you talk about, you know, its sort of ability to avoid hydration, how does it do that? And if I was a web developer listening to that, would this be something that I could intuitively understand? Would I have to relearn things, pick up new tools? Or if I understand React, I understand this? I think you would, it's pretty intuitive. Let's kind of talk about what it is and then we talk about like how things change for you. So I think the best way to kind of understand is uh, to contrast the two approaches. So the way uh, existing applications work is that you need to server-side pre-render it, and so you have to execute the application on a server. And so we all agree that the application has to run on a server in order to pre-render, right? Like that, that in itself is not surprising. And then what you get back out of it is you get HTML that you show to the user, and the HTML looks like an application, but it's not interactive. And so you need to do something on a client to make it interactive, and the way what you do is, if you think about it, is you re-execute the same exact code that the server just ran, on right. the client. And as you're re-executing the same exact code, you know, the, the, the client is learning about where the listeners are, where the component boundaries are, what's the state of the system, and all of these things. And this re-execution is, is causing the slowness. Now, let's compare this to, to resumability. So the best way to think about resumability is uh, virtual machines. I know when virtual machines first came out, that like, kind of blew my mind. And like, imagine you're sitting on your Mac, right? And you open up a virtual machine inside of your Mac and inside of it, you start booting Linux. What you actually see in the window is you see the BIOS come up, you see the boot up, the kernel process, you see the login screen and you type in your username and password, right? Uh, now you're logged in and you open up, let's say a word processor and you start typing a letter. And, you know, halfway down typing the letter, you, you save the virtual machine. You can pause it. Mm-hmm. And it saves it to a file. And the crazy thing about this file is that you can take this file and you can mail it. Well, it's big. But you can send it <laughs> to your friends. Right. And they can all open the file on their virtual machines. And they're literally where you left off. They literally, when the file opens, they're cursor right. blinking at the next character of your letter. 
right? They don't watch the BIOS. They don't watch the kernel booting up. They don't watch this login screen. They don't watch the application uh, running, right? They literally see the cursor blinking at the next character that you can do. Right. You're mailing them that state and they can just pick up yeah. where you left off. Yeah. That's right. And so this is what essentially what reasonability is, right? Like your application was running on a server. You mm-hmm. froze it by serializing all the state. And then you moved it to a different physical virtual machine, in this case, in the client. And you say, continue running. And the application just continues without having to redo all of this work. Mm. And this not having to redo all this work is important because it also it means two things. First of all, you don't have to download a huge amount of JavaScript. So you have a lot less JavaScript to download. And two, you don't have to execute all of these things. And specifically, even if you have an application, a lot of components on your applications are really not interactive. They're really there just for the purposes of kind of the, the layout. Mm-hmm. And those components, you know, still have to re-execute on the client during hydration. But in case of reasonability, well, they already ran once, so there's no need to run them again in the client. And so you basically don't even download huge amount of code in it. And so Quake is kind of different in that, in that sense. And I, what I really talk about is this idea that existing frameworks are replayable, hmm. meaning that, you know, when you go to the client, you rewind the world or the tape or whatever to the beginning and you replay it so that you end up in the same exact location. And this replaying is expensive in terms of time, right? Right. And also in terms of bytes on the wire that you send. Whereas in Quick, like the application runs on a server, you pause it, you move all the bytes to the client, and you just continue where you left off, right? And this is where we get the uh, performance boost in terms of startup. And so do you have to make any sort of like guesses or, um, you know, sort of like presumptions about what the user wants in order to deliver them, as you said, sort of this pre-prepared state which where they can hit the ground running? And if so, how do you do that? So uh, we're super proud of the, the DX because the amount of crazy hoops we have to jump through in order to get here <laughs> was insane. And in uh-huh. many times we were like, this is never going to work and we were ready to give up. But somehow, you know, somebody always had a good idea to kind of push it through. So, so in quick, the whole thing is actually broken down to this very simple idea, which is that in order to make an application resumable on a client, mm-hmm. uh, you need to be able to serialize closures. If you think about it, the, the, web, the web browser is all event-based, right? Mm-hmm. And so it's really just about knowing which event to execute next or the browser executes an event like a click listener. And the click listener be, needs to be able to execute the closure that at some point you created in the past. And these closures were created as part of the server rendering. Maybe they were delivered to a CDN and cached. And now you have to kind of you know, resume the execution of these closures. Mm-hmm. And so Quick's thing is that it knows how to serialize closures. And the way this is done is that you mark the closures using a dollar sign. I know that people have very strong opinions about the dollar <laughs> sign, but there needs to be a way of marking it, right? Yeah. And so we looked at all the possible choices and the dollar sign was the least of all the evils out there. So as much as you know, you have your uh, you know, a visceral reaction to a dollar sign, like it's really the, the, the best choice we have out there. And um, it's part of the, the API of, of the Quick itself. So it's not like you can forget to put the dollar sign somewhere. Like you don't even have a choice. Like as you're using Quick, like the, the TypeScript is going to scream at you if you don't use it. But what this dollar sign means is it tells the, the, both the developer and the optimizer that something has to happen. And specifically what it says is like, hey, look, whatever is behind the dollar sign is going to be a function or a closure. And mm-hmm. I want you to extract this closure into a separate file mm-hmm. so that 
the browser can load this closure and continue executing it. So that's step one. So this extraction that has to happen. Step two is that closure closes over a state of the mm. application, right? Right. And so the thing we need to be able to do is to kind of recover the state on a server and serialize it and then use it uh, on the client. And so the dollar sign really also tells the developer like, hey, you know, whatever you're going to close over or whatever you're going to capture inside of your closure, uh, make sure that these things are serializable. And there is, you know, all kinds of runtime check and linters to kind of help you along with this so that you don't accidentally right. serialize something you're not allowed to. But this is the kind of the idea. So as long as you understand how this dollar sign works, uh, it turns out everything else is essentially the same as the other popular frameworks, like whether it's solid or React, etc. And so you really only have to kind of understand this fact that like, hey, Whatever I put in a state needs to be serializable. And Quick is pretty good about being able to serialize just about all the common things, whether it's dates, timestamps, you know, right, sets, right. maps, and obviously the JSON stuff. But you know, can't put certain things like streams in there. Like streams won't serialize, right? Classes won't serialize and things of that sort. Yeah, I think you said all you need to do is understand the dollar sign. So my marketing brain is, is going to with cash runs everything around me. I got it. You understand that. You can serialize listeners, data structures, application state. You put it into HTML. Don't have to move all that JavaScript around. Just pick up the execution where the server left off. That's an interesting approach, and I guess seems to be working for you. I want to ask you just a few more questions before we go. Let's move off of some of what you're working on. Just look a little broader. What's been your experience? You've obviously been a software developer for a long time. You've created stuff that lots of other developers have gone on to use to build. What's your experience been like with this latest wave of generative AI tools do they excite you? Do they scare you? Are you playing around with them? And, you know, what do you hope, I guess, will be the end result of, you know, chatbots that can talk to us, code for us, debug for us, or generally, you know, like be involved in the process of writing your code? Yes, yes. I love this question. Actually, I am both excited and scared, but not for the reasons <laughs> you think. Okay. Um, first of all, I am super excited because like, wow, the chat GPT is amazing, right? Yeah. I'm sad because... It's so good, you realize, like, is that what humans are? <laughs> like, we're just these right. predicting machines that, like, know how to, like, statistically predict the next word in a sentence. Is really, th is it, that's all we are? That really is my only ability. It's just, the, it's just to say things that sound good when they're coming out of my mouth. They don't really make a lot of sense if you stop to listen. Well, yeah, but, like, how do you get good at speaking? Well, you do a whole bunch of speaking, right? Exactly. Never shut up. <laughs> And so uh, I, I read this awesome book that I really, really enjoy. It's called Thinking Fast and Slow. And I really mm -hmm. recommend everybody reading that. I'm not sure if you read it or not. Yeah, Daniel Kahneman. It's a good one. Daniel Kahneman. It's so good. I joke that that's basically your brain's operating manual. You know, mm -hmm. like it will tell you how your brain works. You should read it. Like if you have a brain, you should read it because you should know how to operate that <laughs> <Yeah>. thing. <laughs> good to read the user manual every once in a while. Yeah, check it out. And David Kahneman makes a very interesting point. By the way, the guy got a Nobel Prize for his work. So like, this is like serious stuff. And he yeah. makes a good point that there is really two brains, uh, what he calls system one and system two. And maybe I get the one and two reverse, but like system one is literally Chad GPT. Right. It's, the, it's the predictor. And you look at system one the way David Kahneman describes it. Uh, and he's not a computer science person as well, right? Like he's a psychiatrist, psych psychologist. I, I don't know. Yeah. And you look at it from a computer's point of view and you go like, oh my gosh, these two things are literally the same exact thing. Now, mm. humans also have this thing called system two. And we don't really have anything for system two in terms of AI. Right. And so this is why I don't, I'm not scared of, of ChatGPT because without system two, 
Yeah, mm-hmm. it can generate really good sentences, but it can't do anything useful with it. Like right. I like to kind of point to people, you know, system one question would be like, hey, ChatGPT, you know, what is the recipe for yogurt? And, you know, it gives you steps. This is how you make a yogurt. And then you say, great, can you give it to me in half the size? And for the most part, it gets this correct. And now you say, great, I want it in one seventh size. Garbage comes out, <laughs> right? <laughs> right? Because the reason for that is because people on the web talk about, you know, yogurt recipes and they maybe talk about what the half size yogurt recipe is, but nobody right. talks about what a one seventh recipe is. Like, that's just not a thing, right. right? But if you had system two, then you can say like, oh, no problem. I can just take system one's answer, which is this is what a recipe is, and I can right. divide it by seven and I will get the answer that you're looking for. Right. Uh, but ChatGPT can't do that, right? And so Wolfram, I'm not sure you're familiar with it. So there's this thing, the company called the Wolfram. Plugin, yeah. Alpha. Yeah, yeah. So they're actually working with ChatGPT to kind of add the computational start. And, and the person actually wrote in a very nice article about how ChatGPT works. And in there, he's basically saying, like, you could really have systems that are good at predicting things, right. or you could have systems that are good at comp- computational stuff, like math, but you can't have both. Like, those are two separate things. Like, you, like right. ChatGPT can get better at prediction, but it can't get better at computation. Whereas computational systems can get better at computing, but they can't get better at predicting. And there are like fundamentally different things that you need to figure out a way to have two systems and have them talk to each other rather than like assume that somehow ChatGPT will learn this over time, which it's not going to. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, there are clearly our strengths and limitations to sort of the large language model on top of the, you know, generalized pre-trained transformer. And we're starting to see what it's like if, right, you give it tools. Here's a calculator. Here's a web browser. Or, you know, another interesting piece of the puzzle, you're not just a large language model that does text-to-text, you also do text-to-image. And one of the fascinating things that I've heard, and, you know, I'm, I'm not a you know a deep learning scientist, is that if you make it multimodal, it gains a sort of better understanding of some of what you're talking about. You know, the ability to have sort of a better, you know, sense of world and, you know, work through some of those puzzles like one-seventh the size yogurt recipe yeah. as it gains a little bit more depth in kind of, you know, its modes of thinking, its modalities. So brave new world we're entering. I want to say thanks so much for coming on. It was a real pleasure to chat with you, to hear about what you built and what you're building. I know that you had mentioned at the beginning, you are a Stack Overflow contributor. So at the end of the show, we always like to shout out somebody from the community who came on and helped spread a little knowledge. Today, we will shout out Orion, awarded a lifeboat badge on May 4th for supplying an answer. What is the Unicode symbol that represents download? Thank you, Orion. You've helped over 57,000 people over the years with your little bit of knowledge. Uh, I am Ben Popper. I'm the director of content here at Stack Overflow. You can always find me on Twitter at Ben Popper. You can email us questions or suggestions, podcast at Stack Overflow. And if you like the show, leave us a rating and a review. It really helps. So thanks for having me again. Uh, so yeah, I'm again Mishko. I am a CTO at Builder.io. That's one place you can find me. I usually on Twitter, uh, M Hevery, M H E V E R Y. And of course, you can find us on GitHub, same exact uh, login name, and check out Quick, which is Q W I K. You gotta misspell things, you know, to be interesting. <laughs> awesome. All right, everybody. Thanks for listening, and we will talk to you soon.